This is the Blacklist Podcast. I'm your host, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of the Blacklist, and I'm joined by... Kate Hagan, Director of Community at the Blacklist. So we're still watching movies, watching TV, thinking about movies, thinking about TV, and we have a very exciting guest on today who... I was thinking about this, Kate. He has literally snuck into arguably three of the greatest film and television franchises of the last 20 years. The Daily Show, The Office, and The Hangover. And yet, I don't know that people think of him as big of a star as maybe he deserves, which is strange. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Ed Helms is one of those comedy icons who has kind of quietly snuck up and taken the reins and really sort of infiltrated how we think about contemporary comedy in a lot of ways that aren't even necessarily apparent until you really start digging into it. We're going to talk to Ed about everything from his start with UCB to being on the Daily Show during the Bush administration and what he thinks about how that has impacted political comedy today. We're going to talk about big studio comedies like Vacation and the Hangover films, and then we're going to bring it all home with a fun fact. Ed Helms, bluegrass musician. You got to listen to the episode to find out more. So let's listen. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Me and Kate with Ed Helms. We love to kick things off with the same question every time, which is, can you remember the very first movie that you saw in a movie theater? I have a vivid memory, and it is the movie that I sort of uh, always go to as my first movie, but I can't. I can't be positive it was the first movie I saw in a theater, but it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's the first memory. Yeah, it's my first memory. That's that's all that matters. Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's good. Can you set the scene for us? Like, it sounds like it's a very precise memory. So, like, where were you? Do you, like, give us the sensory detail. Okay, stand by. The year was 1981. A seven-year-old Ed Helms was, uh, yeah, I went to the, I I remember going with, um, with a few kids on my street that I grew up with, um, Jimmy and Britt and Kelly and I think my brother and um and my mom took us and uh mesmerized just completely completely smitten with adventure and I guess um I was charmed by colonialism is that fair to say (laughs) (laughs) it happened to all of us with the with the Indiana Jones of it all let's be let's be real yeah, that's fair. Do you then consider that the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Yeah, I think a lot of that that Spielberg stuff um, really resonated for me. I, feeling just just the, that sense of adventure and swashbuckling kind of bravado. It's uh, for whatever reason I was a kid that that really appealed to, and I think it had something to do with. Um, uh, I wasn't really into comic books. I wasn't into uh, a lot of other things. I was kind of into Star Wars. I had a lot of action figures, um, but I wasn't obsessed. And and that's kind of how I've always been. I've always been kind of into Star Wars. But uh, but the 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 hunt for antiquities, the 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 exotic lands, and the the battles with evil, you know, evil archaeologists, Belloc. You know, that that stuff, it just was very romantic to me for some reason. Did that sort of set you on a path towards film? 
at that point? Or was it just like, uh, I love this thing. I don't really know what it is. And was there another turn at some point that made you say, oh, this is what I want to do? I, mean, I might not be Indiana yeah. Jones. Like, like, cause I feel like it goes two ways, right? Like, especially with Indiana Jones, I know people who watched Indiana Jones and fell in love with it and became archeologists. <laughs> and then there are folks who eventually were like, I want to make movies like Indiana right. Jones. And I'm curious, like, when did the, when did you decide not to become an archeologist? That is really funny. Cause I, I was very disappointed that where I went to college did not have an archaeology major. That, and this is true. I really kind of I st- I still hung on to it's it. It's not a. I, I didn't mention it because it's fake. Yeah. Like literally, I know archaeologists <laughs> who will say, "I watched Indiana Jones as a kid, and that was it for me." <laughs> well, they did. So my college did have an anthropology department, which is sort of the closest thing. And and it's so funny because the 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 intro to anthropology course or whatever they, they clearly had had a lot of Indiana Jones fans come through because they're like, just so you know, it's not like the movie. It's very boring. It's a lot of library work. You're uh, you know at most you're in the field like dusting off things for for weeks on end. It's not adventurous. You're not uh, overcoming evil or Nazis on a regular basis. But, um, but yeah, so I, there was a little part of me through college that I think still harbored that fantasy, but I will say from a, from a kind of filmmaking film loving standpoint, um, you know, that, that, that Spielberg stuff was always rattling around in there. But the thing that made me really want to do it, was definitely Saturday Night Live. That was the thing that that I that I saw and was like, I I think I can do that, and I want to do that, and I want to be a part of like whatever that is. And that was like when I was a really little. It was like Eddie Murphy and Martin Short, and then and then of course oh. Phil Hartman and um, and the Chris Farley and uh, Sandler and all those guys. Just um, Mike Myers. They just uh, blew me away. And that's what took me, I think, into show business as a whole was that. So I, I have to mention, we both grew up in Georgia. You grew up in Atlanta um, and went to my academic rival, Westminster. I only mention it because literally I'm still bitter about losing in math team and, uh, and quiz bowl to your uh, alma mater. But like, were you the kid who was like recreating all the SNL sketches like on Monday morning in class? Um... I, I like if because I, I remember kids like that too, right? Like during that era, you come in and do yeah, Wayne's World yeah. on Monday morning. Yeah, there, there was um, definitely a lot of that. Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer uh, was a favorite of, of mine. Um, <laughs> there, there, there was a lot of that. I, I remember uh, a jock at my school. I was not a jock, and I wasn't particularly uh, cool. But uh, I mean, I was fine. I was sort of like a middle of the road guy, but. Um, but I remember this jock telling me, like, if you want to impress a girl, just have two or three Saturday Night Live skits, like, ready to go <laughs> in your brain. And you can just kind of, like, rattle them off and uh, and and you'll you'll charm, you know, charm them. And so, yeah, that was there was Saturday Night Live was very present in youth culture at that time. Yeah. Did you have go-tos? Did you have your go-to sketches you could like yeah, trot what were, out what and were recreate? Your well, I, if I was Dieter for Halloween like four or five years in a row. Um, and... That feels very Oberlin. Yeah, yeah, that was... 
Yeah, that's where I went to college, and that that's where <laughs> exactly. I was like that, that. That was like that works. Yeah, that makes sense. I was Dieter. I had a little like stuffed monkey. Then I would just like you know Vogue around and wear a black turtleneck. It's also a very comfy costume. It's just black tights and a black turtleneck. <laughs> I can see that. Um, but uh, what else? Oh, I could do a pretty good Ed Grimley dance. Um, but that's get that's old school. I mean, that's getting. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that that's those were. Those were the old things even when we were kids, I think. Um, what's, what about the strangest way you've watched a movie? Mm. Like, you love Saturday Night Live. You, the, the, the Raiders was the thing that sort of made you fall in love with both archaeology oh, and I can movies. answer this. The strangest way that I've ever watched a movie. Here we go. Um, uh, when we were shooting uh, um, Hangover 2 in Bangkok, and we were in... We shot in, it was a really amazing production to be a part of because uh, we just shot all over the city of Bangkok in all these places and nooks and crannies that tourists don't go, right? You don't, visitors to Bangkok just don't go to these places. We had um, local productions team and local scouts who were just locking in these really cool locations for us. So um, we were doing, we did a lot, a ton of night work on that movie. So we would be in these these really f fascinating, unusual neighborhoods uh, in the middle of the night. And I remember hearing uh, hearing sound, like a crackling kind of like the crackling sound of, of like a film strip projector and, and the audio from it. And it was all in Thai. It wasn't English. But, um, but I could hear what sounded like just a crackling speaker down an alley. So we had a little break and a uh, a couple of us just kind of like crept down the alley and peeked around a corner. And there were four or five guys that had set up a 35 millimeter film projector in this alley. And they were projecting a movie onto a bed sheet that had was hung on the wall. Nice. And the speaker, it was in the projector, right? It was like an old, may have been 16 millimeter. I don't yeah. remember, but, um, and the movie they were watching was this insane action movie, a Thai action movie. And, and it was like, <laughs> I just was watching these like crazy stunts and like things blowing up and every stunt, I was like, 10 people must've gotten hurt doing that. Like that's just bananas. <laughs> um, and it was a fully a Thai movie. Um, you know, it's not something any of us might've ever come across. But to see that and just see these guys sitting there smoking cigarettes, watching a movie in the middle of the night in an alley in deep in Chinatown in, in Bangkok was one of the coolest oh, wow. things. And it just was like, this is, it just sort of spoke to the power of movies and the, and, and also like not being able to understand any of it, but standing there watching it for 10 or 15 minutes and just being completely beguiled and like, like charmed and, uh, it, it just was a very, very cool and extremely weird movie watching experience. And this is why we asked that question. Literally, that, <laughs> that answer is why we asked that question, period. Also, though, I'm struck by the idea that at some point these guys might have or must have turned around and been like, Hey, wait a minute. You guys are the guys from The Hangover. No, they didn't care. I mean, they, they were. <laughs> they had no idea. Didn't care. They were, they were just stunts. watching this thing. And like, it, it, it was like. You know, it had the vibe of like, these guys are shift workers. They work all day or are they, you know, 
that some something where they, like, they're just hanging out. They do this on the regular, and it was just such a. It was just kind of a mundane thing for them, but it was such an such a, you know, just the the cultural contrast for us stumbling on that was uh, was wild. Following down that same line of thinking, uh, we like to ask about your ideal movie watching setup, and that's in a movie theater and in your home. Where are you sitting? What are you eating? Do you go by yourself? Do you like going hmm. with friends? I love going to movies with friends. Uh, that's like, there, there's a couple of guys that I've known from the comedy world for 20 plus years, and we still... It's a lot harder now because a lot of us have families and stuff, but um, but we still texts go out like, hey, you know, who, who's going to the new Star Wars movie with me tonight? I got six tickets and uh, that's the most that's the most fun for sure. Um, ideal setting for that is, yeah, like the arc light. I don't know. That's. I'm I'm with right. you. On I mean, that's the best theater. That's going. my go-to. So, I mean, it's also the closest large theater to my house, <laughs> so I don't know if it's just laziness or it's that good. But that is also my answer. Are you guys dome purists, or do you like seeing movies in the other theaters at the ArcLight? Because I definitely know folks who are like, if I can't see it in the dome, I will. I not am go. not a dome purist, and I actually I, like the dome. To me, is is a is hit or miss. It really depends on your seat. And, um, that's true. And if you're like at the front of the balcony in the dome, it's awesome. That's, that's just, yeah. it's just epic and awesome. But you know, if you're up close or you're off to the side, it gets weird, but other, I, I and I love the smaller theaters at Arclight too. It just, the, sure. the sound is awesome. The, the seats are really raked. So you're never obstructed. Doesn't matter how tall the person is in front of you. It's, uh, they, they did it right. And I love I love having a personal someone come out and give me a little speech about how much they love movies. I do love the speech. It's a really it, it's I, when when I first moved to LA and they did it, I was like, "What the hell is this? This is not like just let me watch my damn movie." And now when I go to theaters that don't have it, I'm like, "Come on, like you know, yeah. give me a little sizzle before the steak." I have this this thing I I do for my friends sometimes in theaters where uh, where I will. Um, get a popcorn and then uh, pretend like I can't find them, and I walk in front of the entire um, <laughs> walk in front of the entire theater and look uh, try and, and like try to look for them, and then and then stumble and spill my popcorn in a big dramatic pratfall. Um, <laughs> and I don't do that at the arc light. <laughs> it's it's the arc <laughs> I was very curious where that where 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 the landing was on that story, um, and I'm sure the arc light, uh, you know, janitors uh, appreciate. Well, that even when I do it for at other places, like I, I, I try clean to clean up, up. I try to clean up as much popcorn <laughs> as I can. But uh, but the the beauty of like a just a fan, a flying fan of of popcorn in the midst of a pratfall, um, it's a, it's a lot of fun. 
You were just talking about going to see movies with your group of friends that you've been hanging out with for about 20 years. So I want to back it up a bit to, you know, uh, when those groups kind of came together, when you started working in sketch comedy and uh, doing some shows at UCB and doing voiceover. How did those early years shape not only your comedic sensibilities, but your dramatic skills, Uh, especially after Chappaquiddick? I was like, oh, hello, Ed Helms, dramatic performer. We love to see it. Awesome. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, I think that, I think people who do comedy really well tend to also do drama really well. And I, I don't know why that is. There's some, um, that there's something in in my favorite comedic performers. There's, there's a, like the people who are capable of being insanely funny, understand something about the human condition better than a lot of people. And uh, and that I think also give oftentimes translates into good dramatic acting. And there's so many amazing examples of that. Um, I don't think I'm a good example of that yet. I hope to be at some point. I would love to do more dramatic acting. Um, Chappaquiddick was insanely fun uh, to do, even though it was dramatic. And the funny part of that one too is that my my sort of um, scene partner for a lot of that was Jim Gaffigan, who's one of the most hilarious people in the universe. <laughs> true. Uh, true. I didn't yeah. make that connection. You're totally but right. he's a great actor too. I mean, he, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's awesome. Um, but, uh, as far as the early days and the UCB, um, I, I don't know that that had much of a, a role in, in any dramatic acting ability that I, that I might have or am still working on. But, um, but it certainly shaped my comedic sensibility, uh, in, in immeasurable ways. Like it, it was just a, um, there was the discipline of it, I think is what, um, what really locked it in for me that, um, you know, showing up to these shows and just, you know, you're part of a team at the Upright Citizens Brigade and you have to, you just have to show up and you have to do it. It doesn't matter how you, how you're feeling or what state of mind you're in. And usually it's ultimately like an extremely therapeutic thing because those, those improv shows are all about kind of teamwork and support and supporting each other. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and it feels beautiful when it goes well. Um, um, you know, there was also a lot of sketch stuff going on at UCB at the time. And I was also simultaneously doing a lot of stand up, and, uh, and all of those things, um, the, I, I think Saturday night live still was a very dominant tone and a, and a kind of like the character work that people were doing at UCB was sort of maybe stuff that would feel plausible going on screen and on Saturday night live, but also the daily show was emerging at that time and, and was becoming a real, um, kind of force in the comedy world. And there was a sophistication to that, uh, to that tone that was also infiltrating the upright citizens brigade and stand-up comedians around New York at the time. Um, so, uh, it, it, it was, I can, I think of all that time as, as sort of, that was me sort of steeping the tea, right? Like I just was a, I was like a, 
uh, a tea bag just in the New York City hot water. <laughs> and um, <laughs> this is a terrible metaphor, but. Uh, yeah, I was like, wait, if you're the tea bag, you're coloring the water. I, I'm with you. I'm with you, though. I get, I get it. We got, I got it. it. We got it. Yeah. I guess I get the tea. I'm the tea, and I was getting flavored by the New York City tea bag, maybe. I think that might be right. There's, there's a lot of different ways. All I know is the title of this interview is now <laughs> Ed Helms' tea bag. Um... Uh, but it's funny because it's a good segue to the question I was going to ask next, which is about The Daily Show. Obviously, you were there 2002 to 2006, which was like another weird time politically for America. Like, I think your first uh, episode was like seven or eight months after 9-11 and then sort of through the early days of the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I can't help but think, like, I remember that era. I was watching The Daily Show literally every night. And I can't help but think like, like you said, the Saturday Night Live was sort of in the mid-90s, the thing for everybody who was thinking about comedy. And I feel like The Daily Show sort of became that thing during that era. And you were there during that period. And now we're living through another, I mean, maybe not another utterly insane time, a completely different utterly insane time. But I'm curious how you guys thought about being funny, but being trenchant in your like criticism of the moment back then. And and whether you see evidence of that now, other than John Oliver and Trevor Noah, who I would just see sort of live in the same tradition. Sure, sure. Um, well, The Daily Show was a really um, it was a really specific thing, and uh, um, uh, let's see, how can I put this? I think The Daily Show found a uh, uh, it, it sort of looked it, it was always looking for hypocrisy through a kind of comedy prism and uh and that's that's what john stewart just did so magnificently yeah. right it was such a it came so naturally to him and um and that ability to kind of call out um hypocrisy or really poor judgment like like demonstrably poor judgment in our and our leaders and public figures. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that, that was the thing that working there, I remember becoming gradually understanding that and gradually kind of wrapping my head around, okay, this is how these jokes are constructed. This is how it's, this is how John thinks. And, and for my field pieces, like these are the things he's going to respond to. These are the things he's not going to like. Um, and the field pieces were sort of smaller. You know, we, we were doing the same thing and with the field pieces, but just not about the president, right? We were doing it about local things around the country. Right. Um, uh, it and yeah, it did feel like a very volatile time, especially when uh, when Bush was reelected. Um, I remember that feeling just like this really strange moment and feeling like, wow, um, don't, don't we know enough not to reelect this guy? Uh, but, um, where am I going with this? 
Oh, you were asking about now. Are there people now that yeah, are Yeah, doing- like, I was like, so, so there's this moment, right? And, and it, it, you mentioned, you know, W's re-election, which we all thought was the worst thing in, like, p- possible uh, at the time. And it just, it feels like we're in a, a similar, though obviously very different and more dramatic moment uh, now. And I'm just curious, ha- has, has how you think about comedy, particularly political comedy, changed in the, God, now... F- almost 15 years since you left the daily show. Well, I do think it's changed. Well, there, there's a lot of what the daily show did well, that's still happening and it's being done very well. And I think Trevor is Trevor. Noah has found his own voice and is really, um, and, and it's, I, I would put it on par with Jon Stewart. Like he's doing really great work um, and he's also, uh, I think in a good way, relying on a lot of what John built, um, in terms yeah. of like comedic premises and comedic ways to sort of approach things comedically. Um, but, uh, that's also the structure of that show, right. As a fake news show, there's right. only certain parameters, but, um, and I think Seth Meyers is crushing it. Like he's, he's doing yeah. something that he, he's doing something that's probably even closer to what John Stewart was doing. Um, and, uh, but just so smart and so regularly on point. Um, and, and what's weird is that that really, uh, once when, when Colbert went to, uh, went to network late night, yeah, it, it, he brought with him that approach as well. And it started to, and then he, he kind of caught fire during Trump's campaign and then all the other, and then yeah. Kimmel and Fallon were like, well, we got to catch up and do that too. Right. And, <laughs> no, it's true. So, You're totally right. So there's, there's a, there's a way that, um, in which I think the daily show, uh, had really kind of trickled into a lot of, popular comedy. I think now. the word you're looking for is infect. <laughs> infected. Yes. You, the daily show infected every aspect of pop culture with your political comedy style. That's I mean, actually, but it, I say that partially in jest, but as I think about it, you're right. Late night, uh, you know, John Oliver's got his show on HBO. Yes, is doing John very Oliver's well. amazing. Like, like, but that, that, and Sam that, B. like, yeah, but that's like, but, and, and all of these people sort of came from this sort of garden originally. And it's sort of remarkable that, that I actually, it's difficult for me to imagine a public comedian for whom that, that, that hasn't either come through that sort of lineage in one way or another. Like I think about like, like Roy Wood Jr. is one of my favorite presidents on, on Twitter. And like he's, they're all coming from that same lineage, yeah. um, which is rather remarkable. Um, and speaking of, uh, you know, pop culture uh, infections, Kate, you want to talk about The Office? Yeah, let's talk about The Office. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I can't remember the exact stat, but last year there was a really brain-breaking stat about, I want to say something like 6 or 7% of Netflix's overall traffic was people watching The Office, which I just think is really fascinating. I definitely know people who have never stopped watching The Office. They're always watching The Office. But without you, an absolutely integral part of the show, I don't think the legacy of the show would be what it is. Uh, what's been the most surprising thing to you about the legacy of the show with fans who remain just ever as passionate as they were uh, when the show was airing? I think the most surprising thing for me has been the role, uh, starting to understand and see the role that this TV series is playing in people's lives. And it's feeling like something that transcends just sort of regular TV enjoyment. Um, it's, it's incredibly heartwarming as somebody who was a part of that show to see that, but it's also just as a student of television and pop culture, it's fascinating and wild. And I mean, people watch that show over and over again, and they're getting something out of it that's more than just entertainment and chuckles. They're getting a sense of comfort. They're getting a sense of place. And I hear this directly from fans who approach me in airports and whatever. Like, I, uh, people tell me that it got them through very difficult times in their lives or that it, it made, you know, a, a, a sick relative laugh for the first time going through something or, or, um, or that it was, yeah, just an escape for them. And, um, and that is, uh, that's so profound. I don't even know how to make sense of that. Um, and, uh, again, I just feel incredibly lucky to have been a part of it. And I think for all of us who were a part of it, 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 it has, it's, it will always be something far more special than anything else we work on in our lives, you know, and I've been lucky enough to work on some really special things, but that show, um, because of the joy and the heart and the, um, the really personal commitment that everybody in that cast made every day shooting that show, um, I think that's what uh, comes across and that's what connects for people because we all loved it. We all loved making it and we all loved each other. And that, and that's something that I think people feel when they watch it, no matter what the storyline is, like who's mad at who or who, who betrayed who um, there's a sense that these people will always be together and will always kind of underneath it all, they'll get along or something. And, and there's, uh, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of fireworks. It's not a show with like, you know, giant actions, <laughs> set pieces or like, uh, or even huge comedic big swings. I mean, certainly some, but, um, but, uh, but it's a, 
it's a show that is very consistent and uh, and warm. And I think that that's gives people comfort. And I'm it's, it's it amazes me, honestly. I think it captures that sort of warm and fuzzy feeling that you get from sort of the great television shows where it's less about I'm watching a show and it's more like, oh, I'm hanging out with my buddies. And I think it like it fills that sort of comfort food, food, comfort food viewing role for a lot of people that we're all sort of craving right now. I'm curious, is there anything that you're binging or any kind of comfort food movies or TV you're returning to right now? Um. The only thing I'm binging is uh, caretaking a two and a half year old. Um, <laughs> who Great need, answer. Yeah, who needs yeah. a constant supervision? She somehow, um, like, I don't, she, she seems to be a very happy child, and yet she still is constantly trying to kill herself one way or another. Uh, pull, Either like pulling yeah. something down on top of herself <laughs> or climbing up things or reaching for very sharp things and amazing us with her sort of like monkey like abilities to get hold of dangerous objects. Um, it's uh, that's I have, we, you know, my wife and I laugh about how we're not getting to watch as much TV as we wanted and the, or as we thought we would. It's like, oh, lockdown. All right, great. We're going to binge stuff. We're just going to hang out and eat ice cream. And we're like, we're just on overdrive, keep trying to keep up with this kid. And um, we're not getting much done, but that's OK. You know, I, a, about a week ago, I just kind of. I just was like, okay, I'm just got to change my expectations. This, this, yeah. it's not giving up. It's giving yeah, th- in. This lockdown is about bonding, like, you know, get, getting an even deeper bond with my wife and kid. It's not about learning a language or, you know, getting better at. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to create calculus or write King Lear. <laughs> yeah. I, if I, if I hear King Lear one more time during this pandemic, I will probably go crazy. And then people can adapt that story and make it their King Lear. Um, you mentioned your daughter though. And actually it's something that I, I don't have kids yet, but it, I have four nieces and it's something that I think a lot about, which is when I get to watch the things that I love with my child, Right. And, and like my even my nieces aren't old enough for me to share a lot of those things with them when I come back as, as the hopefully cool uncle. Are there things that you are already like, I mean, I'm guessing Indiana Jones is one, but that you have already like, oh, I can't wait to share this with my kid. And like, how, like, like what's that? Yeah. list? Well, the list I mean, right now, a question I mean, we should start asking it, a lot. It, it's there's already stuff that um, that we are sharing with her, like Sesame Street and um right. and mr rogers like we watched the very first episode of mr rogers the other day and it's in black and white oh, wow. like i didn't even i didn't even know oh, it was wow. that old wait where where did you is it is that like is that on one of yeah, the streaming platforms it's, 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 that, it's on something i can't remember what you know i use an apple tv so it's it just sort of tells yeah, you same. To, it takes you to what, whatever <laughs> platform Search, yeah. it takes you to where you need um, to be yeah but i can't so i think it might be on prime or something but it's you can. There's every episode of Mr. Rogers ever. Um, there's now a children. There's now a spinoff of Mr. Rogers. That's a new show called Daniel Tiger, which is a a, a a character from Mr. Rogers. That's an animated show, and that's really fun. And my daughter loves it. But um, 
And she, she got up and walked away after half of this black and white TV show. She's like, what the hell is this? Yeah, no. <laughs> but, um, but I can't wait to show her the Muppet show that that's a little ways off. I think that, that we're gonna have to wait yeah. on that uh, another year or two. But, um, but then, um, you know, there, there's, there's some animated movies that I love and I can't wait. We've already shown her, um, Coco, which I think is one of the greatest movies that's ever been made. Um, that's a profoundly brilliant movie. And she loves that. Um, she's really into music and, and instruments. So that, that, that really excites her. Um, yeah, what, I guess Indiana Jones later, um, uh, but I don't know if that stuff's going to hold up like that, like Indiana Jones, the, the, yeah. the special effects in Indiana Jones aren't as good as children's television now. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> that's actually, I haven't yeah. watched children's television in a while, but that makes sense. That tracks for sure. Um, you do, you see things like, you know, Toy Story was state of the art when it was invented and now we have like, you know, food fight is the end point of that. And you're like, wait, but 25 years ago, this was state of the art. What has happened? I don't know, though. I think that for me, the thing with practical effects is that anytime you can have an actor reacting to a 3D object and a 3D space, you're going to get a better performance out of yeah. an actor. So I do think that stuff with older effects is going to resonate in that way. Uh, we just won't talk about some of the uh, political leanings of Temple of Doom. That's a different conversation. Yeah, but getting back to our sort of uh, questionnaire about your life in movies, I'm wondering if there are any films in this sort of great cinematic canon, those movies that we're all supposed to have watched, that you just are like, no, thank you. I'm not going to watch that movie. Anything that you've refused watching from the canon? Well, this is, this, this is not from the great cinema canon, but I'm, I'm not getting into Tiger King. Really? I'm gonna, What's the? We, it, definitely not part of the canon, <laughs> but it does feel like the canon of the yeah, moment. It is the canon of the moment. Explain, explain yourself. Well, we watched the first episode, and we were both just so deeply depressed by it. Like th this is it. It, it really yeah. clicked for me. Um, I couldn't help thinking watching that show, and again, we just watched the first episode. But you see these characters, and they're. I just had this really dark feeling that, wow, some of the most damaged and awful people are also some of the most productive people in our society. <laughs> like these guys, that guy runs a fucking 200 big cat zoo and that's the logistics of that. And like, all the, I just couldn't help thinking like he has people that work for him and admire him and do what he says. And he's insane. Yep. And by the way, I'm not just talking about the Ohio guy. I'm talking about the Myrtle beach guy. Like all these, it's, it, yeah. it, it's, uh, they're, they're just unbelievably. <laughs> no, they have corporate, they, they have corporate operations that they run. They have multiple yeah. employees. And that to the, me, it, and, it, it's, that, yeah. that is the rise of Trump. Like there's, there's no, like these guys are just sort of like mini Trump fiefdoms. Like, oh, it, like really dumb, insane people get it. We elevate them in our cult, in our society for some reason. We 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 like allow them to achieve like a ridiculous amount of power and influence. And um, 
and we don't just allow it we we foster it and we encourage it and it's a yeah. and and so it all of that stuff just kind of bubbled up watching that and i just had this horrible icky dark feeling and of course uh, it was while trump was essentially lying you know just giving these press yeah. conferences that are so unhelpful um and uh contradicting all of his his medical scientific advisors and so forth. And, and it's just like, yeah, that, 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 that's, there are people like this. And for some reason they, they rise in our society. But, and they, but they are very productive. Like say, say what you will about them. The tiger King is not lazy. That's what I'm talking about. Um, I, but he's not he's, sleeping. He's not sleeping in on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday morning. I agree. But, but, Which and, is that, terrifying. and that's amazing, but it's also like, there are also good people that aren't lazy, and I, I just wish we could elevate them more. But I agree. Um, flipping it, is there a movie? Is there something that you resisted watching that eventually you watched and said, you know what, that was amazing? And it's not going to be Tiger King, by the way. It doesn't change in its dynamic after the first episode. <laughs> Um, uh, by the way, I'll probably go back to it once we're, you definitely yeah. will go back to it at some point out of morbid curiosity, yeah. but it, it's, it, it's the same note for six episodes. And I don't know what's going to happen with this Joel McHale thing, but like, is there, is there anything where you were like, I don't want to watch that. And then you did. And you were like, okay, I was wrong. Um, yeah, let's see. There, there are definitely movies that I just kind of missed. Like I didn't see them in theater or like, you know, it slipped by and then. And then I saw it and was completely blown away. And I'm trying to think of a good example, but I can't think of one. Um, we can circle back to this one, too. Okay. Oh, well, Coco was one. I happened to, you know, yeah. like I, I do love animated movies. And um, and that, that came out. And I remember seeing all the, the press for it. And I was like, eh, I don't get it. I don't really get it. I'm not like I'm not drawn to that one. And then I had just happened yeah. to watch it on an airplane and and I was sobbing uncontrollably on the airplane. <laughs> it was like You are the second person who has mentioned sobbing on an airplane while watching a sad movie on this podcast. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> I also think that it's weird because looking back to that, I think the, the the marketing I don't know if it could have done it justice, right? Because right. like how do you right. basically say, you know, on Friday, you'll sob and miss your uh, ancestors from Pixar, yeah. Coco. On, <laughs> I, like, I, but that's that's what you're selling on some level, and that's what everybody took away from it. It's that's like, so yeah, you'll be a mess, and then you'll tell everybody else you should watch it and be a mess. But you, as Pixar, you can't really market behind yeah. that. I thought the way they should have marketed it was like, hey, guys, do you not want to explain death to your children? Would you like an animated film to sort of fill in the gap? And then you can have the hard conversation afterwards. Like, yeah, but you can't market that. That's not a Friday yeah, but, night movie. Yeah, I, mean, if it's, like, I think that makes you more money. Yeah. And, and by the way, it, it's an incredibly complex version of death that that is that's going to raise a lot more questions than it answers. <laughs> Um, but, uh, all that said, yeah, there, so yeah, there's definitely movies like that. Okay. One of our favorite questions to ask. This probably is my is, favorite question. <laughs> what is a movie that everyone thinks is terrible that you will defend until your dying day? We're talking like less than 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Can I say a movie that I was in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Vacation. I, and you guys might disagree. I would respect you if you did. I love that movie. 
I had so much fun making it. I was so proud of it when we finished it. And, uh, and I still think it's super funny and I'm incredibly proud of the entire cast and crew of that movie. That's going to be one I feel like people come back around on in terms of like, oh, this is a great studio comedy and we missed it at the time. True. Kind of getting into that same vein, you know, you've had the kind of comedy career that I think a lot of people dream of. You've been able to be in big studio projects like Vacation and the Hangover films. And then you've also been able to go in some more offbeat directions like They Came Together, Corporate Animals. Um, how, as a comedian, do you sort of replenish your own reserves, especially in a moment like this one where things are tough all over? Who's keeping you inspired? Um, in terms of what I'm watching or what I'm working on or, or all the above, all the above. Well, I can answer the inspiration question very easily because it's one of the things that, uh, is honestly kind of keeping me going right now. And that is, um, I, 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 I feel like hopefully as a, as a society, we're just starting to understand better. I know I am the, the just profound interdependence that we have on each other and, um, and just how foolhardy this, uh, this like cowboy individualism really is because it's, it's not, it's not real. It's not, it's, it's a, it's a figment. The real thing is that we just depend on each other for everything. And that's never been made more clear than seeing all of these uh, essential workers right now that are so freaking inspiring. And this is, I mean, inspiring, like in a soulful sense, not in terms of like, Oh, this gets my creative yeah. juices going. <laughs> this is like, this yeah. is like, no, but in a, like there's hope yeah, for humanity right. sort of inspired. It's, uh, yeah, it's, same. it's the people that are, you know, that, that I think so many of us, um, maybe appreciated at some level, but probably also took for granted at some level, like the person bagging your groceries or the, 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 the person delivering your mail or, um, or the, the guy picking up recycling or whatever, all these, these things, you know, the people that work at a water treatment plant, right? Like I've never thought too much about yeah. those people until now. And I'm like that that's, and, and now they're doing it in a way that's actually, in, for many of them, endangering their lives or or at least, yep. you know, their health in serious ways. And and they're still doing it and they're showing up and um, and they're not asking for like praise to do it. And, you know, I think the the, the medical community is, an, is a very obvious one. That's one that I think we've often taken for granted. Um, but but another another example of of a wake up call that like, yeah. We need people need healthcare. People need healthcare. Like, come on, this is insane. It's absolutely insane. How like, uh, and and yeah. we need to listen to the science. <laughs> so uh, these are controversial <laughs> opinions, sir. I don't know that we can allow this sort of thing on this podcast. Um, yeah, uh, health science. I don't know. How dare logic how reason? Eh, I'm, I, I'm, facts. I'm skeptical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, but that's yeah. All that stuff's very inspiring, and uh, I don't know if I answered your question or not. But 
No, I think it's a great time too. I feel like a lot of people, you know, we have these sort of expectations about, you know, art is great and art is there when you need it. But there are also sort of real life heroes and real life inspiration that I think you're absolutely right that we take for granted a lot of time when we sort of make our heroes uh, matinee idols instead of just being like the guy who brags my groceries is a hero. But speaking of new movies, you have a new movie on Netflix, Coffee and Kareem, uh, which feels like a throwback to action comedies like Midnight Run or Lethal Weapon. What was your reaction reading that script for the first time and what attracted you to the role of James Coffey? Um, so that uh, – it was a blacklist script and – Never never hurts. And, uh, and uh, it, I think what I liked about it was comedy has – film comedy has – kind of taken a beating over the last several years, um, particularly studio comedies. The, there are a few reasons for that. I think the, um, the business model for making comedies is virtually non-existent for, for studios now. Um, but, it, but in addition to that, the uh, film critics ha- and Rotten Tomatoes uh, as a sort of portal to film critics um, just routinely disparage comedies at a higher level. And it's a, it's a weird thing. I don't know why that is. I do feel like comedy is one of the most subjective things. And if you watch a comedy and you hate it, then it seems like maybe you shouldn't review it, (laughs) but uh, because maybe the comedy wasn't for you, but uh, you know, it's weird. We don't seem like classical music critics reviewing heavy metal concerts for a reason. Like it's not for them. So I don't know what the answer is there. I'm not mad at any critics. Of course they can, everyone should write whatever they want. But, um, but I do think that that has damaged uh, the, the comedy business, the feature film comedy business. So when I read this script, it felt like almost an aggressive response to what has felt like a recession of comedy in, in the film world. And it was, it was a, a movie that, that pulled no punches. It was very overtly um, evocative of the movies that a lot of movies I grew up loving, like Beverly Hills cop and die hard and lethal weapon. And, um, and, uh, and a, a type of movie that you don't see anymore. Um, and so that, it also made me laugh a lot. Um, the script, it needed some work, uh, but we were able to get that done and, uh, and it just, yeah, felt like something, something worth doing if we could get the right cast, which we did. Well, that was the other thing. Can you, how, where did you guys find Terrence? This kid, like, <laughs> I, like seriously, where did you find? Like, so I don't know. It's just such an unusual performance for a child actor. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a it is a crazy <laughs> performance. Uh, we had a really extensive casting process for this movie because that 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 relationship between Coffee and Kareem is so critical to the success of the movie, and um, <clears throat> and so we just auditioned so many kids in and multi multiple cities and um and we saw a lot of really really great great actors but Terrence 
seem to get it. Like he's like a lot of <laughs> actors could do the lines and be really good. Right. And, and they were funny, but like Terrence got it in a certain way. And what's really funny about him, he's the sweetest kid. Like he just wouldn't, you would never know it watching this movie, but he's like very sweet and deferential and respectful. And, um, <laughs> but also his mom turned out to be a critical part of this because she got the joke and she was like, I know so many, I grew up with these, this kid. I know so many oh kids God. like this. This is exactly <laughs> like, these are the kids in my neighborhood. I know exactly what this is. And she was, That's she hilarious. loved this, this, this character. I mean, she doesn't let Terrence behave like that at all. Right. But, I just have this image of um, her like egging him on yeah. during the shoot and then being like, you don't talk like that when we leave set. Yeah. But, uh, but she she got it and and in a really funny way and was like a great kind of ally through the whole process and um and yeah he's incredible i i hope he really blows up off of this thing cuz he's he just has that weird charisma that you can't explain or or it, you just get it he gets it right away it's awesome it's funny you were talking about the, the Rotten Tomatoes and the comedy thing and, and this idea that sort of, it's funny, thinking back to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about how comic actors oftentimes can be this sort of, like can transition to being dramatic actors uh, in this really unusual way. And, and when you were talking about it originally, I was thinking about Eddie Murphy in the context of SNL. And I don't know, I, I couldn't find this story Googling it, but someone once, like they were trying to convince him to do more dramatic roles. Like, Eddie, you clearly can do both. You can do the clumps and you can do, you know, uh, you can get the Oscar. Like, why don't you do more drama? And he was like, look, man, they play my comedies in hospitals. Right. Like those are the things that when when things are really bad for people, that's what they want to watch. And that makes it all like I don't care about the reviews. I don't care about the awards. But like they literally they play my movies in children's hospitals. Again, might be an apocryphal story. But for me, that's that always sort of goes to the core of the way in which people just undervalue comedy, like in the industry and the critical establishment. Yeah. So just a thought. Well said. But, yeah. Not me. Eddie Murphy. Well, so, well quoted. You know. Yeah, well quoted. Uh, if it's true, who knows? Um, so one of the other questions we ask, uh, I used to work for Sidney Pollack during the last year of his life. And one of the things that he said that blew my mind was that he's only interested in making movies about two subjects. Um, and he made a lot of really good movies, but um, he was interested in making movies about love and making movies about war, because those are the only two subjects that in thousands of years of human history, we have no greater understanding now than we did then. Which begets this question. Favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war. I am so jealous that you got to work with Sidney Pollack. It is, and Anthony Minghella, because they had a shared company. Um, but yeah, Sidney used to call me into his office and be like, this reminds me of when Milos Forman submitted me Ragtime. <laughs> oh, but you don't, you don't want to hear that story. And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, you're literally, you're paying me. I'll sit here and collect a paycheck to just tell me all of the stories of your 50 year career, making the best movies of that era. It, it was, it was a joy. And he was a gentleman of the highest order yeah. on top of and it. An, un, he's an amazing actor. Like I, well, I love, started yeah. as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I love his acting. I mean, it's just, he look, the last conversation he and I had in person was he and I running lines for his appearance on Entourage. Uh, like I read the Ari part and he <laughs> read the Sidney Pollack part because uh, it was something about him. Like because Sidney also was a pilot. So like he would fly to set with his 
you know, he would rent a plane and like pilot the plane to wherever he was going to shoot. And I guess the Entourage episode was about Ari trying to get a ride on Sydney's plane. So I got like that was our last interaction before he sort of left the office for good. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, wow. one truly one of the greats. Um, what was the question? That bought you time. <laughs> favorite question about love. Uh, favorite movie about love. Favorite movie about war. All right. Uh, boy. Oh, favorite movie about war is is Apocalypse Now. No question. That's that's one of my favorite movies, period. So that's an easy one to to put at the top of the list. Um, and favorite movie about love. Can I say Coco again? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, lo- I just love Coco. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. And I've watched it a ton, like a lot of times. And I love the music is so good. And. It's just so incredibly evocative. But what's a what, what, what's a non kids movie about love? Like about adult love? What is? I like that you mentioned a movie that's about familial love, though, because ninety nine percent of the answers to this question have been about romantic yeah. love, which is great. But like, I think it's an interesting gets to an interesting sort of core of like what we think about as love stories in film. Like, I don't know. To me, like Terms of Endearment is one of the great love stories, yeah. but it's a mother and daughter. Yeah. Yeah, Terms of Endearment's phenomenal. Um, uh, you could say Top Gun's a love story, right? A man, it's a, a beautiful man love his story. Plane. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, a man in his career as a fighter pilot. Uh, I, I, it's funny. These I hate these questions. I, I, I enjoy them. To be clear, I enjoy them, but I hate them because. These are uh, these are the kinds of questions that I would ruminate on for hours. <laughs> and and yes. like when I get asked them in an interview, I'm like, well, I have to just come up with something fast. I don't know. Well, uh, the beauty of it is, is then the next time you're uh, you have something that's out in the marketplace, we can have the conversation again and get different answers because you've had time to ruminate. Yeah. on it. It's all it's a very it's a very elaborate setup for for a continuous conversation. Good. about movies. Let's have it. Let's have it. Uh, speaking of, and this will this was one that will drive you even more crazy. Um, single image from a film that has sort of most stuck with you in your life. Uh, it can be a cut. It can be a moment. Uh-huh, but like, uh-huh. what's like the, the that that one that one thing that really? Well, I'll tell you this. This comes to mind very quickly. Um, the and I think it was a promotional still from the movie as well. Um, mm. The Nick Cage with pantyhose on his head and Huggies diapers yeah. under his arm and a gun in the other hand when he's yeah. holding up the convenience store or the, the whatever that grocery store in Raising Arizona. Um, that is one of the funniest ideas that a guy would hold up a, a store uh, with a huge gun and an arm and diapers under his arm. And of course, anyone, anyone with pantyhose on their head just looks ridiculous. Um, and one of Nick Cage's most, I think, incredible talents as an actor is how earnest he is. You know, he has that, um, he just, and I think it's why he's so compelling and has been for so long. It's the same thing that, that actors like, um, I don't know, like an Owen Wilson or somebody like they just have this 
this this thing that you just trust their earnestness and uh and that's what makes raising arizona to me like one of the all-time greatest movies ever it's like everyone in that movie is so dialed in to their character they're so earnest and yet everything that's happening is so absurd and insane (laughs) and i saw that movie i was recovering from open heart surgery i was probably i think i was 13 years old and i was my aunt who was who was watching me when my parents both worked so my aunt came down from nashville to keep an eye on me and uh and she went to blockbuster to rent a bunch of movies and and she came back, she said, the, the video clerk said, this one's really good. And it was Raising Arizona. And I'd never heard of it. And, uh, and we watched it and I was just dumbfounded. I'd never seen anything like it. It was bananas. And that line, uh, I'll be taking this, I'll be taking these huggies and whatever cash you got. It's just, I don't know. It sticks with me. That's a long answer, but <laughs> there you go. It's a great answer. Shout out to that blockbuster clerk for spotting your I aunt know. and being like, I know <laughs> right, something right. a 13-year-old exactly. boy yeah, is going to exactly. love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were kind of dancing around this when we were talking about Coco um, and the role of music in Coco, but something I learned is that you are a big bluegrass fan and that you perform in a bluegrass trio, the Lonesome Trio. How has music shaped your creative process and does it factor in like do you write to music do you have sort of playlists for projects things like that oh wow that's a lot of great questions and uh i've always seen music that there was a part of me that 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 thought oh, maybe i'll be a musician but um but i i've i still struggle with music performance like it's something that gives me a lot of anxiety for some reason uh i'm better now than i was but it's always been it's always been harder for me to play music in front of a crowd than to just grab a microphone and start talking and telling jokes like that. That came easy. Music was always like felt like kind of hard work for me. So as, as much as I love it. Um, but uh, but I've the, the cool thing about bluegrass music or one of the one of the many cool things about bluegrass music to me is that it's it's a very communal music form like jazz in that everyone, anyone who is a, is a player of that music form uh, or a student of that music form knows the same canon. You, you, you all know the same, at least the same like 50 to a hundred songs that you all can reference. And, um, and so even if you don't, you don't know all the words you can play along. And so that means that people, strangers, people that don't know each other can just circle up and start playing and having a good time instantly. The other thing that's cool about bluegrass music is that, and also like jazz, and by the way, they couldn't be more different music forms, but they have these things in common. Um, very heavy improvisation in bluegrass music. Um, and, uh, particularly, you know, instrumental soloing and so forth. Um, and you're improvising over these kind of musical structures that, that, uh, that all the players understand and kind of speak that same language. And that's something that I, and I've had this conversation with music friends that, that I really think has a lot of crossover with comedy and comedy improvisation in particular. There's a really, you have to kind of, you have to, you have to stay focused and kind of stay like, you know, 
uh, you have to stay pr- in the thing that you're doing. You know, if it's a song, you have to stay in the chord structure of the song that you're playing while you're soloing and improvising. If you're in a scene in a movie and you're improvising, you have to stay in the narrative sort of like structure of whatever you're doing. You can't just like veer off into a whole different area. Um, and those challenges, I think, kind of exercise the same little nuggets in in your brain. And it's really fun. It's really challenging and really, really fun and really exciting when it goes well and really gratifying. Um, so that's a really cool way that I think music and performing have always overlapped for me. As far as like music, I listen to, I, I do definitely listen to music when I'm working, when I'm writing, I listen to film scores. I love film scores. I love, and always have, like since, since I was a teenager, I, I was really preoccupied with the ability of film scores to make you feel Obviously, you know, mu- all kinds of music can can make you feel sad or happy or nostalgic. But one thing that film music really does, um, and I think a, a lot of there's some classical music that does this and some jazz, but not a lot of other kinds of music. Not a lot of pop music does this. It fills you with this sense of anticipation. And that is such a cool, powerful thing that film scores do. And I am obsessed with that. And I love music that makes me feel anticipation. I, even if it's very abstract and you don't know what you're anticipating, um, you know, the great film scores just really suck you in and kind of rivet you in, in, a, in a cool way. So I, I, it doesn't matter if I'm working on a script for a really broad comedy. I mean, I wrote this comedy uh, with with my writing buddies years ago that was like full-on Zucker Brothers-style comedy. But I was listening to like, the whole time I was, I was writing it, I was listening to um, just really moody James Horner, like uh, American Beauty soundtrack, like all these really kind of brooding, moody music because it just fills me with like, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? I don't, I don't know. It's a fun, um, it's a fun thing about film scores. Uh, and then was there another, oh, playlists for, for projects. I only make playlists for projects if we're actually trying, if I have input on the actual music in the project. So um, like Cedar Rapids or, um you know, this movie I did a couple years ago called The Clapper and even Coffee and Kareem, like movies where I'm a producer or um, or just I have a lot of influence over the process. I'll definitely make playlists for things that I think will help the um, the movie and things that we might even be able to put in the movie. Uh, uh, and then I usually will make film score playlists for movies as well. Um, just as kind of temp stuff to use during the edit. And then um, also sometimes a little mood setting for for me, like in my trailer beforehand, uh, if I'm about to do a scene and I want to feel a certain way or keyed up a certain way. 
You heard it here first, guys. If you're trying to write a comedy, listen to some brooding film scores. I love that answer. I love that it's like not at all what one would anticipate. I'm going to take us home with our final question, which is how we end every conversation. And that question is, if you were given the opportunity to screen one movie for the entirety of planet Earth simultaneously, uh, we don't have to worry about time zones or streaming or any of that, anything like that. Uh, what movie would you pick to show the entirety of planet Earth? Oh boy! Another um, head scratcher. I know another yeah. another ruminating one. We go big. Yeah, I feel like I know the answer. Yeah, vacation. Um, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we can do better. It was, we that, can do it was better. that. It was either vacation or Coco. It was one of the two. Um, <laughs> no, we can do better. Uh, uh, for the entire world simultaneously. I God, I feel like there's just some amazing documentary or. Um, or something that uh, helps us understand humanity, and I can't put my finger on it right now. I've been deeply moved by lots of movies, and I'm on the spot. I can't. I can't g- give me some some springboards. Like what types of things? We've had people say all sorts of things. Uh, it can be things like, "Oh, you should watch." I want to go heavy, like something. You want to okay, go heavy? Okay. All right, there we go. Yeah. Um, in that vein, we've had like strange love. We've had do the right thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, so Kate and I both shared do the right thing on this. Weirdly, uh, we sort of interviewed each other uh, for the first sort of practice episode of the podcast, and we both said that yeah, strange love is one that feels terribly relevant sure, at the sure, moment. That's a good one. Um, but yeah, if you want to go heavy, that's sort of the direction people have gone. But look, a lot of people have gone light, right? Like it's a weird time. So Back to the Future was some was one someone suggested. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro was another selection. The Breakfast Club. The Breakfast yeah. Club was another one. I feel again, and I'm just I'm just basing it on the conversation we've had thus far. Coco feels like your answer. It just uh, on the like everybody needs a cry. Everybody needs to understand their fellow person mm-hmm. and like the ways in which we're all connected. But if you want to go heavier than the movie that made everybody cry, feel free. <laughs> I feel like it's either uh, the Val Kilmer Zucker Brothers classic Top Secret or um, uh, which would just make everybody smile for two hours yep. and uh, or Coco. Yeah, Coco's up there. Keep It's my go to. It's just on the brain right now. Um, this is this I, is one where I'll have a very profound answer in about two hours. Excellent. And next time we interview you, we will get into that. one. You got it. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ed. Hey, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. From Luminary Media, The Blacklist Podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Han Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at thathegengirl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.